0: Thank you. Um, so I'm excited to talk. I do get nervous about talking. I don't know why. Um, it's I'm an academic who doesn't lecture, but I am forced to give talks in my academic life. Um, this is my offering to you, and I realize that this is um, about it. Um, what I like that. Joe just said, it's always the self in relation to others. So as much as this talk is about me, it's also about you and it's about us together. Um, uh, I too got my second vaccine yesterday. I'm not having any side effects, so yay for that. But I've also been at an academic conference for the last three days. So it's uh, interesting to come to this present moment uh, with these different elements together. Um, Frank had asked, there had been a call on the Dharma Dialogues about possible Dharma talks. And Frank had said, asked the question, how does one reconcile their academic side with their spiritual side? So I'm not sure I wanna embrace the word spirituality, but I thought I it might be appropriate for me to give a talk related to this since, um, I don't know if I necessarily reconcile them. I don't know. It, they're rather different and yet they're exactly the same. So I study learning. I study learning um, as a practice. Uh, I, I study all things as a practice. I study my practice as a practice. And uh, I'm very intentional about the words that I choose. Um, I think deeply about how we're interacting, uh, I have notes, um, I think d- differently about where my mind is located and what is my mind and how we think and where cognition is, um, so if you don't like me looking down, I apologize, um, but I, the question why I interrupted uh, Joe and David about your mentor, your coach, or your teacher, um, I asked specifically about your most memorable, not your favorite, not who you most cherished, but memorable. And I noticed, you know, Josh said, I didn't know at the time, but my father, right? So there, there, you can tell that there's some complexity there for what that, what was taught and what was learned. So I'm going to share with you a few of uh, my memorable teachers, because I'm in the field of education, so I work a lot with teachers. Um, when I was in kindergarten, so I, uh, I preschool wasn't really um, that common uh, when I where, when I was growing up where I was growing up. But I went to kindergarten knowing my alphabet, knowing how to read, knowing all my letters, just something I knew. Um, and I had a teacher who even later, I remember commenting to me, Mrs. Inglehoff, I could never get you to stop putting that hat on your J whenever you wrote your name. So I always signed, put would do a J with a hat on it. So, you know, thinking that one thing you learn is that what you know is wrong. So, and then it might not surprise you that I was um, contrarian in high school, kind of had a reputation about that with teachers. And I was in a physics class and we were learning a lesson on probability and our teacher had set us up in in pairs. You know, there was probably 10 pairs. I don't remember the, the exact number, but we were given quarters and we, me and our partner were just supposed to flip your quarter and record whether it was heads or tails. So we did this and you were supposed to do it a hundred times and then we we're going to generalize. And I flipped the quarter and it landed on its side. And my teacher, because of who she perceived me to be, would not believe me. I said, but no, it's, it was not heads or tails. It was on the side. So I, you know, learned that, um, what I knew to be true wouldn't be believed. Then later in life, um, when I was in my, my 20s, um, I worked my way through college. Um, I was working at the neighborhood pizza restaurant and the, the teacher who had always been my favorite teacher, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Lynn, she shared a birthday with my niece, my first oldest niece who was born in fifth grade. So they always had this connection. I knew so much about Mrs. Lynn and she saw me waiting tables. and. I was early 20s and she said this is what you're doing with all your smarts and I was like oh okay that was a long journey that was maybe the the kick in the pants I needed to keep going in my education uh which has been multiple decades now to pretty much work with teachers and telling them how they're wrong so Um, In part, this is a joke, right? That there's uh, a lot of enjoyable parts of working with teachers. And what I often try to do is um, help them to see how they might be better. Uh, Which I have a friend who's a high school teacher from my high school. She says, only you, only you would be someone who's trying to work with teachers having never been in a classroom yourself, of course. and so I wanted to share with you the perspective I have on learning as, the, as who I am as an academic on this, the, the learning sciences. And the best that I can compare it to um, when I think about learning, I met someone who's a, a glaci- glaciologist, right? We might think of someone who's a glaciologist as, oh, they just study ice. And I'm sure we can appreciate that they think about ice. It's way more than just frozen water and there's all kinds of things. Um, well, I, I, that's how I think about learning, right? Learning, we colloquially will use the term to say that it's always about acquiring some kind of knowledge or acquiring some kind of skill, um, but it's so much more than that. Um, it's just that we use these things to say, like, I have learned to ride a bike or um, I've learned what a prime number is. But more often than not, we're looking at a particular type of skill that supports participation in future skills or going more deeply into a phenomenon. So I'm always trying to show how this partiality is part of a more complete whole. Um, one of the things that before coming to Penn State, when I was at CU Boulder and still um, a graduate student, I worked in the faculty teaching excellence program. And I would try to bring this perspective to other faculty. And I would always ask this question, and it worked all the time in Colorado. I don't haven't tried it on the East Coast, but I'd always ask what's the capital of New Hampshire? Anybody? Just some people are smiling. I and I did this many times. This was, and I was doing this with PhDs, with people. Um, you know, someone who had won the Nobel Prize for physics. The only person who ever knew what the capital of New Hampshire was grew up in New Hampshire. And part of the reason that I was doing this, we value certain forms of knowledge and not others. But I would never go up to someone who, is a, who has their PhD and assume that they don't know what the capital of New Hampshire is because we recognize people as being capable of knowing certain facts. And we confer this recognition in different ways. So when you have something, when you have some kind of symbol, a high school diploma, a Ph.D., um, it comes to symbolize that you're a particular type of person, independent of what you know or what you do not know. So learning is not about these discrete things of knowledge. Think of all the things that you quote unquote learned. I can think of several, um, how to diagram a sentence, calculus, um, all of these things, um, we, we capture a moment in time, document whether or not you know it, and then it's okay if you forget it. Um, there are, when you're in education, there's all these ways in which we think about approaching learning. So some of these other ways we have the cognitive approach to learning, which we think is a fundamental shift in the brain and maybe the brain structures that learning is located there. Um, and the brain is fascinating and amazing, and we can learn so much from it. So, one thing, you know, I, I mentioned this the other day uh, babies are born with the capacity to learn an infinite number of languages. And as they learn a language, we know that brain structures change and that you know, certain synapses fire more often than not and that it, the, the brain actually transforms itself. And we want to think of this as a causal explanation. And as soon as we have a grasp of this idea, we learn about neuroplasticity and that our brains aren't actually set in this way So where, if knowledge, so not we we have this idea that knowledge might be located in the brain, um, but there's a whole field of learning that's looking at um, how what we take to be knowledge is not located in an individual person. It actually stretches over the person and the environment in which they live in. Is this is one uh, concept is distributed cognition. Our ways of knowing are a, they're a relational product between us and the environment. And a lot of this work um, comes out of anthropology and our cultural ways of knowing. So I was thinking about Gene um, Lave, Who's an anthropologist studied the ways in which we learn math and there is a way that we we might in a classroom measure somebody's math performance abstract and decontextualize and what she did is she would go and look and watch how people in grocery stores would compute um, the what's the more cost-effective groceries to buy You know, and now we have, if you go to the grocery store, you'll see the little labels that'll tell you cost per unit. And there's this idea that the culture, our way of being in the world is known as um, partial solutions to frequently encountered problems. Um, Another way that we might think about learning, there are psychological or behaviorist approaches to learning. And Judy, who's not here, she gave a Dharma talk about um, her work with uh, children, with um, younger children. And she would talk about um, training children, which is a behaviorist approach to think about, you know, what do we want children to do? And um, there, There are some people who look down upon behaviorism, but we know that behaviorism works, right? Behaviorism is really important in classroom management. We have bills, we do things to help encourage students to do certain things. But when you look deeply, again, this is a partial view of what's happening. For each of us brings ideas and values to what we think are the correct and appropriate behaviors? There's this really um, wonderful TED talk by Sir Ken Robinson, some of you may have heard. And so um, there's a story of a, a, a mother who is worried about her daughter because she won't pay attention in class. You know, she's not behaving appropriately. She's sitting in her chair and she's fidgeting. And um, a psychologist goes and observes the daughter and says, "Well, she's not sitting in her desk because she's a dancer. She's not meant to be a student in this way. And so this, you know, this is the story of this that someone who recognized that her fidgeting, in and of itself, wasn't a problem. It was her way of being in her body that led for her, to her to become." Um, a world known, world famous ballerina. So when we think about learning from this holistic perspective, it's not just about acquiring knowledge. It's not just about acquiring skills. It's about identity. It's about being recognized by others and by recognizing ourselves as having changed. And in this recognition, this is ontological. Through recognizing these identities, something comes in to be. So in this way, learning is becoming. And what we often try to do is we try to freeze this moment in time to capture what is happening and freezing it and capturing it is always going to be partial within this totality. So Xu Long and I um, got to present a paper in which we were trying to understand ourselves as Buddhist practitioners in relation to ourselves as learning scholars. And um, we, this idea of learning as becoming, as being an ontology, we are relating it to um, the, the notion of dependent origination. So independent origination, which is that all factors of existence depend on other factors in order to exist. Nothing exists on its own. No thing possesses independent identity all things exist relationally, just like learning is a relational process. When there is this, that is. With the arising of this, that arises. When this is not, neither is that. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So at each moment when we sit, and I I was thinking about this in meditation, We can can experience while sitting, but also um, walking meditation. Each step that we take, we take this moment to arrive. And in that moment, the past is full of possibility and the future is full of possibility. And it's always changing. Now. What this helps me to think about is to think about. Um, I, I I think about the the scholars, the learning scholars, who've always kind of recognized the inherent possibility, um, specifically in children. And so some of these um, some of these learning theorists include the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky, or um, Piaget or Maria Montessori and all of these, the the Lev Vygotsky, he believed that all children could learn all things. And I've, ex, you know, extend that to, I believe that all people can learn all things as it's a relation. It's just that in order to make the shifts, it might not be practical, right? We all, we tend to have limits. Um, Piaget believed that we construct, we bring these disparate pieces together to make sense of our world. Uh, the same like with Maria Montessori, you know, that that our, our role as educators is to help frame that construction process. But they all had this inherent idea that um, children by their nature are curious. So it makes me wonder too, what. Difference. what's the difference between their vision of curiosity and what I think we all experience as way-seeking mind. I think that that's something that we can recognize. My recognizing the curiosity of children, I can name it one thing in education, and I can also name it something as a Buddhist practitioner. So when we focus, um, so when we, if you take this holistic perspective, if you think more broadly about learning, you notice that um, any time that you focus on some form of partiality, we are ignoring the complexities and ignoring. Um, all of the other phenomenon, all the different forms of history that could be in the situation, all the different ways in which we might structure the future. And this has some um, detrimental effects uh, if we think only about partiality. So I was gonna share another story um, about a time I was working in a preschool and in Boulder, which is you know a landlocked state And there was, uh, um, they engaged three and four year olds in a science unit, um, and they wanted to figure out what the what they might be interested in studying. And this was shortly after um, Hurricane Sandy. And there's one perspective of seeing uh, children as not knowing things. But the thing, children hear all the things that are around us all the time. So they had heard, you know, the devastation of the hurricane on listening to the radio in their their parents' cars. It was, it was still in, in their world. And so they decided to have a unit on hurricanes. And they, um, these were three and four-year-olds. They gave them crayons and they got to create things. And there was a picture someone drew um, of the hurricane and... There was a jump rope um, that the, the young child had drawn. And, and she said, well, what we need to do, we need to trip the hurricane. If we trip the hurricane, it won't make landfall. And we could, we could joke about that, or we could say that that's flawed reasoning. But in reality, or, but actually, that's how the barrier islands work. So we could make fun of the idea of a jump rope or we could say, you know what, you are right. You're right because this is what, why we need to protect the barrier islands. But we have to believe that our students know something. Again, when we don't take a holistic perspective, uh, we often see deficits. And this might come out in the form of, if you are not the dominant culture, then you are something other and less than. If English is your second language, then you are somehow behind and need to be remediated. I'm hearing news stories all the time about learning loss because of the pandemic. We have we are we're failing our students to be able to score on some measure that we know is not actually measuring something instead of focusing on learning gain. we could shift our focus instead of these abstract measures of discrete partial knowledge and look at what students are learning you know some students are learning how to engage with their families some learnings are some students are learning patience, resilience. What we should all be learning is that our education system has always done more than we thought it was doing, right? We're seeing the failures. We're seeing that you know schools were sites of lunches, of hubs of community. They were economic and community support structures. But we can only take, we can only have this perspective if we recognize that the partiality is always part of this greater whole. I was thinking about um, I my contrarianness, in that um, to some extent, it's been a a, a product of being the youngest of eight children. Um, I think uh, Joe commented on Max recently about how he was always kind of jealous of these sibling relationships and not having these sibling relationships. And um, when you are the youngest of eight children, you always kind of recognize the partiality. Um, I was never, the smartest. I was never the most troubled. I was never the funniest, right? These are the things that I wasn't. Um, and I used to think that, uh, that this partiality prevented me from being whole. I no longer think that, um, that I always am bringing who I am, my whole self, to all of these situations. And I think in part, what this helps me to realize is one of you know, my favorite sayings by Shinru Suzuki, you are perfect as you are and you could use some improvement. So that enables me to go into a learning situation and think about all of this complexity and also guide and steer how we might want to be. Um, those of you who know me know that the, the last few years have been really difficult for me. It's been challenging for me to think about academia. It's hard to be an academic. I didn't think I was going to continue to be in this job. Um, And I was thinking about Mrs. Lynn, Carolyn, telling me, this is what you're doing with all your smarts. And how wrong she was. How, you know, part of me was wondering about, you know, that pizza place, it is still there. It has been a pillar of that neighborhood community for 40 years. Some of the people that I used to work with near over two decades ago still work there. There's something amazing and beautiful and smart about what happens there. And I was thinking about um, how science only explains a partial view of reality, right? So I think Ame um, might have more insight into this. The the um, I wasn't believed that the quarter landed on its side, but the the probability of that like of a I found online a nickel. There's a one in six thousand chance that it would land on its side. Um, we focus so much on this causality of these numbers, and it also reminded me of. Um, The night uh, the 2016 election when there was this keep calm and trust Nate Silver that um, Hillary Clinton would win and he was wrong. Right. And of course, we can we can talk about the mathematics of this, but we often don't talk about the feelings. And then there's also um, Thinking about physics, we talked about last week and the new particle that just defies all expectations, the Muon. So um, I've tried to always recognize it's a both and. Whenever we focus on this, it's always going to be partial and there's always going to be that. Um, I will say that, Now, every time I print my name, I make sure that I recognize I'm always complete. And I put that T on my J.